0: Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. What I'd like to talk to you all about today is what I consider some of the best arguments that atheists have against Christianity and give my thoughts on it. And when I say the best arguments, I don't mean the most thorough or even necessarily the most terse, but the most fair-minded and the most pleasant. See, to me, a good argument, especially if you are arguing against something that the, uh, that the next person considers very deeply meaningful and personal to them, if you simply come at that with coarseness, with belittling, with straw men, and so on, then you really lose a great deal of credibility and the right to be heard. Now, if the belief that the other person holds is considered to be quite evil, then perhaps your outrage might be justified, and it could shock the person, if you're outraged, that is, it could shock the person out of that evil belief. But if it is simply something that they believe very deeply, then a level of respect, not necessarily for the belief, but for the person, should be there, in my opinion. It's been the way that I've always tried to share myself, or share from my own perspective. I'm not saying that I've always pulled it off, but it's what I try to do. And for that, I have indeed gained a great deal of hearing, a great deal of listening from the people around me and I've seen those with a great deal less tact lose the ear of others. But anyways, with that kind of as a preamble, the two arguments that I have heard uh, from atheist standpoint stem from uh, two primary difficulties between the two beliefs. The one has to do with evidence and the other has to do with morals. morality and rationality. So I'll start with the evidence one. Now, many of you have probably heard of this from the atheist standpoint, and maybe you are an atheist and kind of share this opinion. The complaint, rather, that if God was so obvious and so plain in the real world, then why doesn't he give us more evidence? but that's a rather coarse way of putting the argument. Let's put it the way that I've heard it, and I think it puts it a lot better. Reading the Bible, we see that Adam and Eve, at least Adam, got to actually walk with God. We see that Moses got to witness and be a part of some great miracles. We see that David and Solomon actually talked with God. We see that the twelve disciples actually walked with Jesus and witnessed miracles. All of these people saw or experienced on a fairly deep and uh, right in their faces kind of level that God is real, that he's actually there, that he's actually involved. Why don't we get that today? Why is it that today so few people see any physical representation of Jesus or God? any obvious miracle that can't be explained away by science or chance or insanity. Why is it that we don't get that from God? Now, some of you may remember that I brought this up in a previous podcast. What I'm going to highlight here is that that argument, as good and heartfelt, I think, that it is, why can't we get the same privileges of the people as the people we read of in the scriptures. That argument is a bit of a straw man. Why is it a straw man? Because it doesn't use the Bible's own criteria to disprove the Bible. The Bible as a whole, the arguments of Jesus, the arguments of the apostles, never say that the miracles are the evidence for the truth of Christianity. Now, you take miracles out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity. Duh. Why? Because one of the miracles, or the very central miracle, rather, of the Bible is Jesus' resurrection, which is a miraculous event. But that doesn't mean that miracles are the basis of the truth claims. See, if you go to that level, what you are implying is that Christianity needs to essentially be a magic show. In order to believe in Christianity, you have to see it do things that you cannot explain. Now, magic in the sense of sleight of hand has been used, as far as I understand, historically, to deceive people. To deceive people who don't understand that you can make things appear to to appear and disappear based on mere sleight of hand, or to change their form, or something like that. And people who do not understand those basic, or to we think today, basic things have been duped out of not just money, but sanity. Their very own sense of reality has been twisted by such people. Now, in modern day in the West, of course, we simply consider sleight of hand entertainment. But if, uh, once more, if you put the requirement of witnessing miracles upon Christianity, then you're asking for it to be a magic show. And we also can read in the scriptures, as I think I mentioned the last time I brought up this point, Jesus specifically argues that if a dead man were to raise again and talk to those, talk to others about the danger of hell, if they had not already believed on the basis of the law and the prophets, then that's not going to help them. And we see the evidence evidence in the scriptures, if you believe it to be historical, which I do, that the Israelites in the books of Exodus and Judges and so on were experiencing miracle after miracle after miracle. And of course, in those times, they didn't have science to try to find some other explanation as to why what was happening was happening. They had no reason to believe that it was anything other than miracles. And they still didn't believe They still didn't, in other words, follow God. They might have believed in the existence of God. I think that would have been hard to disprove. What they didn't do is follow him. What they didn't do is remain loyal to him. The miracles apparently didn't matter. What is the criteria that the scriptures use? Let me put that on the side one more moment while I mention that, yes, there are cases where miracles are used as a argument. However, they are in very specific circumstances. When the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked on John the Baptist's behalf, are you really the one or are we waiting for another? Jesus' response was, go and tell him what you have seen and heard this day, that the blind see, the deaf hear, and the good news is preached to the poor. He's talking not just about miracles, but about what Jesus is doing, which followed the prophecy about his ministry. If you remember the scripture that Jesus read in Nazareth from the book of Isaiah, that's exactly what it says about him. So he was claiming to John the Baptist, I am the one fulfilling the prophecies that are about the Messiah. But anyways, the main point being that, yeah, miracles are part of that argument. Absolutely. But that was him there fulfilling the scriptures. And it seems to me that the fulfilling of the scriptures is actually the crux of his argument. Miracles just happen to be a component. So now, going back, taking back off the shelf, what is the actual criteria that the Bible says that we should use? That criteria is the word of our testimony and preaching the gospel. That is what the early disciples and the early church was told to do. It was the telling of stories, and it was telling our story. The stories of the gospel, the stories of the Bible, and telling how our lives have been changed, how we have been affected, how we were convinced that it's true. To put it another way, it is by reason and evidence that we are to believe, just like in a court. We hear the testimonies of witnesses, we hear the testimonies of experts, and so on. And if we can come to the point of being beyond a reasonable doubt, then we believe, and maybe convict if we're on the jury, on the basis of that lack of reasonable doubt. In the same way, if we hear the testimonies, hear the story of the uh, from Christians, hear the story of the gospel understand the arguments and the evidence for Christianity, which does include the evidence that the miracles actually did happen. That is the basis upon which the Bible is to be believed. Now, if you think it's unfair of me to point out that we should use the Bible's criteria, well, Christians have done the same thing with Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin wrote that if you could find anything in nature with irreducible complexity, then his argument absolutely breaks down. Now, have we found things in nature with irreducible complexity? Guess what? You're looking through them right now. It's your eyes. Eyes cannot lack a single component of their makeup and still work. As far as I understand the argument, this is true. You can look it up yourself if you need more. And I could be wrong, but as far as I understand, this is the case. So think about it. Along evolutionary terms, if evolution comes about by gradual changes, adaptations that aren't just adaptations, they're adaptations that actually help the organism, then if we cannot lack a single component of the human eye and still be able to see correctly, or even see it all, then what on earth did the generations prior to us that were still mutating, evolving, and adapting to develop the eye, how on earth did they live, how on earth did they exist, and what on earth was evolution doing to continue reproducing a feature of the face that didn't operate at all, Until, poof, finally it did all at once because the final component was finally evolved. How did evolution know its business? How did evolution know to take those steps when it wasn't working at all before then? And then suddenly, bippity-boppity-boo, it works one day. Evolution would have to be assumed, as far as I understand the argument, to have a sort of omniscience, almost like a god. Now, whether you agree with that or disagree with that is your own business. But if it is true, then that on the basis of Darwin's own arguments to be used for or against evolution, well, have been studied. And there are many others like it. Um, There's a sort of flagellum of bacteria that has also been found to have irreducible complexity. And that's a very non-complex form of life. It's a bacteria, for heaven's sakes. It has its complexities, but it's still very small. Anyway, so the basis upon which we are to believe the Bible, believe Christianity, on the basis of the Bible, is testimony and stories. It is proof like you would find in a court of law. It is reason and evidence. So yeah, you can complain all the live long day that we don't see the skies splitting. We don't see the seas splitting. We don't see people's arms growing back. We don't see fire coming down from heaven and so on and so forth. Guess what? Most of the people in the Bible didn't see that either. The times that we read of in the scripture involves in very few cases, large masses of people. So in other words, when Elijah was challenging the prophets of Baal and fire came out from heaven and consumed the altar with the water and so on and so forth. How many people actually witnessed that? Eh, Maybe around 50 50 tops, somewhere around that. Actually, it might have been more because I think the prophets of Baal were very many. But whatever the case (laughs) certainly wasn't, the several thousand if not millions of people in Israel at the time, absolutely not. How many of those people in Israel saw any miracles throughout the course of their lives? Well, based on the fact that we also read that when Jesus was on the scene, nobody had ever seen or heard of anything like that, probably none of them. In other words, the Israelites that were going along for generation after generation were having to believe that God was real and he worked miracles on the basis of the stories of the exodus from Israel, of the creation of earth, and so on. The creation of the universe, as a matter of fact. It was very much on the same basis of what I am arguing today, that most Israelites throughout their entire history in the Bible were asked to believe that it was true, that it was real, that God was really there. So leaving that behind, the moral argument, or as I called it, the rational moral argument. This one I find to be fairly effective in the way that it's been presented. See, the question really revolves around why are we struggling in this world against evil? Why is it that we can't just function as a society, but instead we seem to have these two poles where there are some who seem to want to build society and to do good, and there are others who seem to want to destroy society and tear it down. What is the evolutionary response to this, and can evolution settle this dispute? As many well know, it is the primary weakness of the evolutionary argument. How does evolution explain morality? Christianity at least has an answer. It's God. Now, there's more to it than that, but I'll get to that a little bit later. Well, the atheistic response that I've heard that I think makes the most sense is that human beings having the emergent property of rationality are only just beginning to grasp that morality is reason. Let me break that out a little bit more. In our very language, the words rape, theft, and murder have a very specific definition and show that you cannot be doing evil or you cannot be doing a crime when there is also will on the side of the other party. You cannot rape somebody who is willing to have sex. Rape, by definition, is sex that is not wanted. You cannot murder somebody who wants to be killed. We call that assisted suicide, not murder. You cannot want to be stolen from. That's maybe a fridge on your, front, uh, on your front driveway that says, take me. That's not theft. In other words, what we are coming to realize, and this is what's called universally preferable behavior, is that the proof of morality is shown in the fact that morality is reasonable and rational is the fact that human beings in general prefer a particular kind of behavior and not its antithesis. To act in a moral way is reasonable. However, the evolutionary explanation of why, therefore, do we still struggle with things like theft, theft, rape, and murder is that we're still evolving. We're just getting this whole rationality upgrade or expansion pack, if you will, in our brains. So we're only just beginning to understand that the way to live morally is to under, is to live rationally, to live with reason, and if we truly do that, we will be living morally, we will be living ethically. I think that that's a very strong argument in its own right. Now, my response to it Okay, but that does not answer the question. It begs the question. Why? Because you still have to ask, why did reason and morality come into the picture in the first place? See, before reason and morality came onto the scene, in the evolutionary perspective, it was everything was read in tooth and claw every being every biological organism was simply trying to fight for its own survival and betterment for the good of its own species and most of that is what we would call today immoral the killing of one's fellows the killing of one's of a different tribe simply because they seemed to or actually did threaten us running from predators etc 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 red in tooth and claw right And then we start getting this rationality expansion pack, and we only begin to realize that these things are what we would consider immoral. Okay, but why? Where, Where did that come from? It's an emergent property. Okay, so what? Another emergent property, if you want to call it this, though it's not quite the same thing, is that when you have one tree, it's a tree. When you have a group of trees, it's a forest. Okay, how does an increasing intelligence of the brain suddenly produce reason, which leads to morality. Where does it come from? Once again, this seems to assume that evolution knew what it was doing before it did it, which assumes a godlike, omniscient kind of wisdom in the blind processes of evolution. See, what you're really saying if you're using the evolutionary argument is that, well, morality is here, so evolution must have produced it. Well, that's just as cheap as saying morality is here, therefore God must have made it. The two arguments are exactly the same. But with evolution, they do not have something from outside. The uh, the argument, rather, does not have something from outside being dropped into the consciousness of humanity in order to give us the sense of rationality and morality. Whereas in Christianity, we do. Why? Because God is rational. God is so rational, he understood and is the source of morality at the very beginning. And he, making us in his image, put that in us as well. We have the capacity of rationality and we can understand morality we can understand universally preferable behavior. And he very clearly not only wanted us to get there, but also has fed us ahead of time the reasonableness of morality, or at least just morality itself, and we gradually have discovered that it's also rational and reasonable before we even began to do so. Just look again at the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, you may not agree with everything that's written there, but the point is... God was obviously interested in the moral behavior of his people. That's what I'm trying to get at. Anyway, so as I said, it continues to simply beg the question. Though the argument is put in a much better way than many atheists tend to put it, it's still the same old tired answer. You can't explain how such an emergent property just comes up out of a species that prior to that very instant was red in tooth and claw and was doing the sorts of things that we call immoral today. Perhaps enslaving one another, killing one another, just trying to survive. Trying to gather food no matter how much it hurts the people around them or apes around them as the case may be, particularly if they're from a different group. And so on and so forth. You can't just explain that from evolution, but Christianity does at least have an answer to it. So let me engage with one more point before I end today. Because obviously me talking about these things is going to bring up the protest of, oh, but the science of evolution is agreed upon, the science of evolution is well-founded, and so on and so forth. And I'm not necessarily going to dispute that in and of itself. What I dispute is why it is the central, most agreed-upon scientific answer to why we exist, why even morality exists, according to some, why biological organisms exist at all. I don't want to go into a great deal of detail on this, but... What most atheists very much want to defend, and this has been proven by the introduction of universally preferable behavior and other rational defenses of morality, what most of them want is to defend their amoralism. How do I know that? Because if you can bring to them a rational answer to the existence of morality, not a proof of why it's there, but a rational proof that it is there, that it is real, many atheists turn their backs, shriek, call you evil, whatever it is that they could do to silence you. This to me proves that the reason why they want evolution to be true isn't because it's scientifically accurate, though that may be the case, I don't think so, it could be though, but because it gives them the freedom to just continue to be animals. To be read in tooth o'claw, to just seek sex and money, food, survival. Whatever it is they happen to want at the moment. Now I'm not saying every atheist is that kind of person. But if they don't have a voice from the sky or from reason, virtue itself, coming out of the clouds or the ideal human life and saying you ought to live thus and thus, then they don't have to live with a sense of obligation. They might not become so evil that their hearts are black, but they can be free to live however they please. Now, if that is the motive of a great deal of atheists and evolutionists, how many of them are professors? How many of them are the people writing the dissertations and the peer-reviewed documents? How many of them have an axe to grind, and by the way, I would agree with this, towards Christianity, which really is saying towards the church. Many of you know from my previous podcast that I'm not a great fan of the church, any church. I think there are some good ones, but in general, I find them to be pretty darn corrupt. If they have an axe to grind against the Church, and a motive for wanting amoralism to be real, then why on earth wouldn't they have a bias towards the quote-unquote evidence for evolution? One of the primary evidences that supports the idea of, of, of evolution is, of course, the great age of Earth and the universe. It gives, in their view, enough time for things to gradually evolve. I have my arguments against that as well, but we'll leave that aside for the moment. Did you know that we can take a stone of known age, in other words, come up out of a a volcano around Hawaii or something, and we know it's only been there for a few decades, and if we carbon date that rock using the same instruments that have been used on bones and the like, it still comes out at millions of years. Do you think any evolution-believing physicist or biologist is going to give you that little tidbit today? No. Because, of course, there is a great deal of pressure in academia to agree with the consensus. If you believe anything other than evolution is true, the world's been here for millions of years, blah, blah, blah. Are you going to be accepted or scorned and ridiculed? I don't really tend to believe any set of beliefs that is only there because it's popular. And that includes Christianity today. If it's just popular in the church, but it's not based on Scripture and a a good interpretation of Scripture, I don't give a crap. I don't believe it. Here's one that I was just pondering today. There's a scripture that says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Many Christians think that that merely means don't let night come when you're still angry. What? (laughs) Sometimes you need some sleep. Sometimes you can't freaking think unless you get some sleep. So you get some sleep so you can continue to process through whatever it is you're dealing with. Right? That kind of a simplistic interpretation is, to me, very irrational. What makes a great deal more sense to me and keeps with the logic of that scripture, especially given that it is part of the poetry of scripture, is the idea that you do not let anger simply pass. What do I mean by that? If there is something that is making you or the other person angry, you freaking deal with it. You talk about it. You try to find the source of the anger and solve the problem. You don't let the sun go down on your anger. Most people today will just kinda, ah, it'll pass with time. But the anger's there for a reason. You remember my podcast, many of you, about anger, rage, and wrath. The anger's there for a reason. So if you just try to ignore it, it festers and grows. The reason for the anger, that is. The anger will dissuade. The anger will dissipate, but not the reason for it. Anyways, that's a bit of a digression. The point is, whatever is the popular belief, I hold in skepticism for that very reason. Because the bias only grows. The more people believe it, the more pressure there is to believe it. So why on earth would I believe that evolution is the correct scientific interpretation of the world and the universe when there is a massive amount of not just social pressure, but money involved in continuing to not just believe, but profess the idea that it's true? There are a great deal of professors and teachers whom, if they said, that evolution is not true, not fact, that lose their jobs. So, no, I don't necessarily believe that it is entirely false, but I certainly don't believe it's true in the modern day with these pressures, with these biases. So, to me, The skepticism does not go to Christianity, not today. It should go to atheism and evolution. I honor the arguments, I respect a good and well-put argument, but I've not yet been satisfied that any of them hold water. That's all I have for today. Have a good one.